This morning we're in the second week of a series looking at Jesus' last words. His seven sayings as He spoke from the cross. We're on week two, or should be on week three, but somewhere along the line we'll have to make up for that to be finished on Easter Sunday, but we'll, we'll figure that out along the way. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 23, and since we missed last week, I want to take us back and read the verses I read last time as we looked at Jesus' first saying from the cross. Luke chapter 23, and I hope you'll turn there and follow along. You'll, it'll help you this morning. Uh, Luke chapter 23. I'm going to pick up on ver- in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Him. That's Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Him. And the criminals, one on His right and one on His left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide His garments. It was history's darkest day. Man putting to death the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate. But it was no accident, not any part of it. Some of you, if there's nothing else you need to hear this morning, just need to hear this. With God, there are no accidents, ever. To help us know that, God placed in the Old Testament Numerous prophetic pictures looking, looking toward the coming Messiah, the coming of Christ. One example tucked away in Israel's hymn book, the Psalms, is Psalm 22. Written a thousand years before Christ, it clearly pictures this scene which we've just read here in Luke on Golgotha's hill. Psalm 22 is all about the crucifixion. But let me just read a couple of verses and you'll recognize immediately what I had just read in Luke chapter 23. This is from Psalm 22, verse 16. It says, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. The psalmist sounds like he was standing at the foot of the cross describing what he saw. Jesus was crucified between two criminals. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, hangs between two who many of the day would call the scum of the earth. But again, it was no accident. The Scripture says in Isaiah 53, another passage which talks, prophesies much about the Messiah and His sufferings. It says in Isaiah 53.12 that He would be numbered among the transgressors. In other words, He would be treated like criminals. He would be lumped in with them. And here is Jesus treated like a criminal and hanging on a cross between them. There's no accident Not only that this is fulfilling the prophecy of Scripture, but because God has placed Jesus on the cross between these two thieves because there is a divine appointment that Jesus has with these thieves which will result 
in His second saying from the cross. Who were these criminals that Jesus was hanging between? We might assume that they were partners in crime, but the Bible doesn't tell us that. In fact, the Bible tells us very little. We can get a little clue about these these men by the words that are used here. In Luke, the word we just read, it calls them criminals. The Greek word for criminal literally means an evildoer, a malefactor, one who does evil stuff. Not a one-time offender, but someone who has a pattern of crime. They're habitual offender. They're career criminal. This isn't the guy who, you know, got in his chariot to take, give his friend a ride and his friend said, oh, stop here and he pulls into the little quick trip there runs inside and pulls out a gun and holds up the place and comes running back out and says, you know, take off! And he gets caught up in something. No, this is someone who was a a part of the criminal class, the underworld. He's a hood. He's a thug. He's a gangbanger. Matthew and Mark, in their account, they use a different Greek word for these men on the cross. The word there is often translated in the English as a robber or a thief. But the word literally means one who plunders openly and with violence. They're not someone who works in the dark like a, uh, like a cat burglar. They're not someone who uh, is a white-collar criminal or a, you know, a non-violent guy like a pickpocket or a shoplifter rather refers to one who does their work with force. A mugger, a carjacker, an armed robber, someone who doesn't hesitate to injure or kill people in the pursuit of their crime. In other words, we put all this together and the kinds of men that are hanging on each side of Jesus are the guys that if they come into the restaurant where you're seated and eating your dinner, you hurry up and pull the kids a little close and get out as quick as you can. The kind of guys where if you see them you know, coming towards you at the mall or in the park or down the street, you kind of move to, out of their way and go take a wide path around them. Luke continues his account. If you'll follow back to Luke 23, verse 35. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God and his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. As Jesus hangs there on the cross, there is heartless insults, merciless mocking that is hurled at Him. Probably most of us grew up saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We always said that to try to convince ourselves or try to convince others that words don't hurt, but of course we knew that they do. Words hurt terribly, often more than sticks or stones. It's astounding that Jesus here, having endured the 
hours and hours of beatings through the night, the scourging that ripped the flesh off the back, exposing bone, deep gashes, the crown of thorns pushed on His head, then nailed to the cross to endure the agony hanging there, the suffocation, struggling to breathe. With all of that, you would think that people would have some semblance, some little minuscule amount of sympathy. No, there is nothing but vile, crude insults, cruel taunts, wicked laughter at every groan, every cry, every struggle. It's the religious leaders who join in the mocking and who lead in many ways the mocking, taunting. You're the Christ! Save yourself! (laughs) The soldiers as well, our text tells us, mocked Him. The sign above Him there in sarcasm. Here's Jesus, the King of the Jews. Besides crucifixion being the most painful death that the Romans could come up with, they also made sure that it was very public. You know, today most executions are done in private. Not very many people witness them. But the Romans wanted this painful, excruciating death to be as public as possible and This was no exception. Right outside the gates of Jerusalem, right beside a main road is Golgotha. And the Scripture tells us in Matthew in his account, verse chapter 27, he says that those who passed by derided Him, wagging their heads. Even the crowd, even the folks who are just walking by hurl insults at Jesus. Again, it was pictured back in Psalm 22. I read a moment ago from that. Psalm 22 says this, but I am a worm, not a man. It's, again, it's the Messiah, it's Jesus Himself talking. I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. In Matthew's account again, Matthew adds that even the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. The robbers on either side of Jesus, these criminals, join in with the crowd with the same insults, and they hurl them at Jesus. Sarcastic jeers. In Luke 23, only Luke adds this part of the story, but we pick it up in verse 39. It says, One of the criminals who was hanged with Jesus railed at Him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. He mimics the taunts of the religious leaders that we've already read. Yo, aren't you the Messiah? Well, then save us. It's 
a request, but it's not a sincere one. It's sarcasm. And as Matthew points out, for an hour or two or three, it's both of the criminals, the one on his right and the one on his left, both of them are doing this, making fun of Jesus even as they hang there in agony. But somewhere along the line that morning, we don't know when, sometime between the beginning of the crucifixion and hour three, sometime between nine and noon, thug number two, we'll call him, thug number two grows silent in his jeering, in his taunts. And somewhere in there as he grows silent, he is watching and he's observing and he gains understanding. And finally, thug number two breaks silence. And what he has to say changes from what he had been doing. Verse 40, the other rebuked him, the other criminal rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are also under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. There is two criminals hang on either side of Jesus as Jesus endures merciless mocking. Suddenly from one of the criminals, thug number two, comes a desperate plea. His understanding has led him to four very significant conclusions. The first conclusion he has come to is this, I'm afraid of God. He says to the other thug, the thug number one, he says, do you not fear God? Understanding that we are under the same condemnation. We are here hanging on a cross. We are in a very short time going to stand before the Creator of the universe. And thug number two has come to realize that I'm afraid of God. And for good reason, because... He says, we are condemned and we're being crucified because we've earned it. We deserve it. Our punishment is just and we are getting exactly what we deserve. So we ought to fear God. Because if men say that we're guilty, what chance do we have before a holy God? So the first conclusion, he fears God because his second conclusion, he realizes he's guilty but his third conclusion has to do with Jesus. We don't know what this man knew about Jesus before this day. He may have known nothing at all of Christ before this moment. Or he might have at some point in time actually been passing by somewhere where Jesus was teaching and heard Jesus say something. He might have witnessed some miracle Jesus did. Or he probably at least had heard some people talking in the marketplace or wherever and, and hear people talk something about Jesus. But when He came to the cross and when the crucifixion began, this man obviously thought that Jesus is just a loser. And he has joined in with thug number one and they have been, he's been busy mocking Jesus, joining in with the crowd. 
But somewhere along the line, he has seen enough, he's observed enough, he's heard enough where he has drawn a sure and certain conclusion. And he says, this man has done nothing wrong. And if this man has done nothing wrong, what that means is, He's not the man that they're saying He is. They're saying He's a fraud and a phony. They're they're mocking Him and jeering at Him because He claims to be the Christ. But if He's truly innocent, He is the Christ. He is exactly what the sign above His cross says. He is the Christ, the King of the Jews. And He's drawing the conclusion that Jesus really is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised One of God. And if that's true he realizes then that Jesus can help him. Jesus is the only one who can help him. And so he asks Jesus for mercy. He throws himself upon the mercy of God. Interestingly, unlike the first thug number one who called out to Jesus in sarcasm, save yourself and us. In other words, get us off this cross. Thug number two doesn't ask to be saved from the cross. He doesn't say, get us off this cross. Get me off off this cross. Save me from death. What he says is, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What he's asking for is not being saved from this situation, but being saved after death. He understands that Jesus is the only one The Christ is the only one who can do anything after this life is over. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's such a humble cry. This is a man who understandably deserves absolutely nothing and he understands that better than anyone. I don't deserve anything, but Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, just a crumb, just anything. He has no basis upon which to ask that. He says, will you? These same statements are the same essential things that anyone and everyone must understand today to be saved. There is a holy God to whom we will give account. We ought to fear Him. Secondly, we are guilty. We are sinners. We're guilty before God. Thirdly, God sent Jesus. The promised one. He is the Christ. Fourthly, I must believe, I must trust in Him to save me. The only words that Jesus has said so far from the cross are the words we read earlier and we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. If you were here that week, you remember we talked about some of the answer to Jesus' prayer. We looked at Acts, but I saved this one for this week because the first answer to that prayer of Jesus is this criminal on the cross. As Jesus was being crucified, He was one of the ones who was hurling His own abuses and His own mocking on Jesus. And as Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Included in that is this man, these criminals on each side who are mocking Him. And what we see unfolding in this very moment is thug number two is the first answer to Jesus' prayer as He moves in this 
time on the cross, He moves from being one who is blaspheming against Jesus to one who believes in Jesus. Jesus, to this point, has ignored every comment, every insult, every person who has spit upon Him, everyone who has thrown a rock at Him as He hangs there. Jesus has ignored it all and not responded to any of it other than praying to God. He hasn't responded to them, but He's prayed to God, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. But as this criminal next to Him says, remember Me when You come into Your kingdom, Jesus turns and addresses Him personally. And he says, verse 43, Jesus' second saying from the cross, And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What we see here is amazing grace. Jesus turns to this guy who truly has lived as the scum of the earth, a violent, vicious, self-centered man. A man who has hurt and abused, possibly killed others. A man who has nothing worthy of giving a second look, caring at all what happens to him. And Jesus turns to him and with such grace says, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Amazing grace. Jesus begins with these words, Truly I say to you, what Jesus says here, in other words, is the truth. And in this moment, He gives this man three marvelous truths about and promises about salvation, which by the way are not only for His benefit, but for ours. Jesus says this, Today you'll be with Me. There is immediate salvation. He doesn't tell this man, well, someday you'll be saved. You know, spend enough centuries in purgatory maybe and someday you'll be saved. No. Today you will be saved. Immediate salvation. Not you will be saved maybe. I'm not sure. I'll, I'll have to think about it. I'll have a little talk with God and we'll decide. Maybe. No, he says today it's immediate and it is certain. You will see this promise realized this very day, he says. Jesus granted salvation on the spot. There was nothing else this criminal has to do to earn salvation. And that's a good thing because it would be kind of difficult. God put this criminal here so that you and I can plainly and vividly see that being saved isn't about being worthy because He wasn't worthy. That being saved isn't about being, doing good things because He didn't. Being saved isn't about earning anything because He couldn't. This criminal was never baptized. He never took communion. He never attended church. He never walked a little old lady across the street unless he was picking her pocket. He never put an offering in the offering plate. And yet Jesus tells this man today, you'll be with me in paradise. He's the perfect illustration of what the Bible says, what we looked at a number of weeks ago in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. This man was saved 
Not because he was good, not because he did good, but because he simply believed and trusted and called upon Jesus. And Jesus said, today you are saved. Thug too would die that day, but his death is now simply the beginning of eternal life. Some folks might say, well, that's pretty cool, but I wonder, is it possible for someone, for anyone today to have that same assurance that that man did when that man said, today you're going to be with me in heaven? Is it possible for someone today to have that same assurance? The answer is absolutely yes. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 says, I write these things to you, little children, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know, emphasis that word, underline it in your Bible if you need to, that you may know that you have eternal life. Not because you've been good enough, not because you went to church enough, not because you gave enough to the church, not because you whatever... Not because you were baptized. Not because you took communion. All of those are good things, but none of those get you into heaven. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Period. If you trust Jesus as your Savior, you can know that you have eternal life. Our brother John Kirk doesn't have long left in this life. Maybe hours, maybe days. Back when John was first diagnosed with this cancer, he and I talked in the hospital room. And his words were, there's no fear here. And all along the journey, there has never been any fear here. Because John knows the day I close these eyelids in death, I will open them in heaven. I'm going home. And that's why his prayer a few days ago was, Lord, let's make it soon. Let's make it soon. By the way, this truth answers the question, what happens to believers when we die? The answer is we go immediately to paradise, to heaven, into the presence of Jesus. Second thing, I'll quickly move through these. Second, wonderful truth about salvation. It's a heavenly salvation. He says, paradise, you'll be with me in paradise. This man who deserved the cross, this man who deserved everything he had right there, this man who wasn't worthy of living on earth, has a new identity and a new destiny. He's got a marvelous future. Heaven is not sitting on clouds playing harps for eternity. Heaven is a real place. Jesus told us before He left, I'm going to prepare a place for you. There's an awful lot we don't know about heaven. What little bit we get from the Scripture, we understand it is real and it is fantastic. If the God who created us and who created everything in this universe that we think is so awesome, if He says of this, it's paradise, I think we can trust Him and we can believe Him. We don't need to be afraid that i got to try to squeeze in a bunch of stuff here on earth because heaven's going to be a letdown. No, it's not. This is a letdown. Heaven is awesome. Not only a heavenly salvation, but it's a personal salvation. Jesus says, you will be with me. Heaven, paradise, will be amazing, but the best part of paradise isn't paradise. 
is being with Jesus. Just like most of us understand that home really isn't about a building or about a piece of ground. Home, for most of us, what really makes home home is the people that we love that are there. And home is where they are. It's not in some place, right? So it is with heaven. What makes heaven heaven is the one who is there. It's Jesus. What an amazing story. What an unbelievable story. Thug number two, this violent, vile man. Picture the most despicable criminal character you can think of. That's the guy hanging next to Jesus. And in the very midst of his execution, he encounters Jesus and believes in Jesus. And within hours after he believes in Jesus, instantly he's given a new identity and within hours he closes his eyes and he steps off the cross into eternity, into the presence of Jesus in paradise. What a story. God has allowed us to know this man's story so we might learn three incredibly important lessons. First, anyone can be saved. Some people think God can't save me or God won't save me because I've gone too far, I've done too much. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, if you trust in Jesus Christ, He will save you. God still, God still today saves criminals and drug addicts and prostitutes and murderers and ISIS fighters and liars and gossips and cookie thieves. Anyone who will believe in Jesus, God says He will not turn away. Second big truth we need to see is that it's never too late. As long as you still have breath in your lungs, as long as someone still has breath, they can call on Jesus and be saved. If that's you here today and wonder, is it too late for me? Would, could God still save me? If you still are sucking air, the answer is yes. Call on Jesus. If that's someone, if someone else that you know that you think will never believe there is still opportunity as long as they have breath. So keep praying, keep sharing, never give up. Third important truth to notice is being close doesn't count. Two criminals hung there that day, one on each side of Jesus. Both were rotten to the core, both were condemned, both were dying. Both had access to the same information. Both had equal access to observe and to hear and to communicate with Jesus. Both of them died that day, but only one of them went to heaven. Being near Jesus doesn't save you. Knowing facts about Jesus doesn't save you. You must choose to believe, to trust in Him, to call on Him as your Savior. Let's pray. Father, I don't know if there's someone here this morning who has yet to say, yes, Lord, I believe. If so, may they see through this story Your heart for them, Your love for them. This is why Jesus came, is to save the lost. 
May they see that they haven't gone too far. It's not too late. As the Scripture says, today is the the day of salvation. If they call on you, you will save them. Even this very minute where they sit. Father, for all of us who know Jesus, may this truth grip us and may we realize we are in we are in a world surrounded by thugs numbers one and thugs numbers two. The difference between we, we are all basically in one of those categories. We're all a thug one or thug two. Every one of us is guilty. The only difference between them is what we do with Jesus. So Father, may those of us who know Him, may we be faithful to pray for others and to share the good news. There is salvation, there is healing, there is grace in Christ. For we never know whether we're talking to a thug one or thug two. All we can do is be messengers. That's what you've get, the job you've given us to do. May we be faithful in it. In Jesus' name we ask it.